This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Have you been wanting to read more, but don't seem to have the time? Well, with Audible, you can read your books without having to find the extra time in your busy schedule. Stuck in traffic on your way home from work? Why not marathon the Harry Potter books? In the gym and want to learn about the First Lady? Well, you can listen to Becoming Michelle Obama while doing leg day. And if you go to audibletrial.com cultivate, you get a month free of Audible. That includes one credit that you can trade in for any audiobook of your choice, access to thousands of audiobooks free to listen to with your account, and best of all, you have access to all of your favorite podcasts in the app as well. So be sure to go to my link, audibletrial.com cultivate. That's C-U-L-T-I-V, the number eight, to sign up for a free month of Audible and start reading today. Thank you, Audible, for supporting the show. 39-year-old Robert Bedella was, by his own admission, an odd fella. Bedella, the proprietor of Bob's Bizarre Bazaar in Kansas City, Missouri, advertised on his business cards that he had poison in his brain. He showed a kinder side around the house by assisting his Hyde Park neighbours in starting a neighbourhood crime watch programme. His strange behaviour on the job was written off as advertising hype until one afternoon in 1988, when a man wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck leaped from a second-story window of Robert Bedella's house where he was being held captive. He blurted out a story of sexual abuse which caused Bedella's neighbour to run for the phone and dial 911. This is the case of the butcher of Kansas City, Robert Bedella. Well, hello, my fellow weirdos. It is your boy, Dom, and welcome to episode 29 of Horror House, True Crime and the Macabre. So it has been a hot minute since the last episode of the podcast, and I hope you didn't miss me too much. But good news, I am back in the motherland. I am back home in jolly old England, which means, drumroll please, we are back to weekly episodes. The podcast is back. But some big news before we start. Some big news. So Horror House has a patron now. And if you want to support the show and become a patron, then you will get perks such as two bonus episodes a month, access new episodes before general release, ad free episodes, and more. So come and support the Patreon page. I would love to have you. You'll also get a patron shout out as well uh, when you do join. The link will be in the show notes. It is also in the bio on the Instagram and the Twitter page. So check it out and come join us. Also, Cultivate, which is the podcast network that I am part of, also has a Discord page. Um, And it's amazing because not only can you interact and chat with the other amazing shows, there's also a dedicated channel on the Discord for Horror House. So if you want to suggest topics for future future episodes, for example, if you want to leave feedback and give your thoughts about uh, an episode that you listen to or a new episode, or if you just want to hang out and chat with yours truly, then come on over and hang with me and hang with all the other shows that are on the network. Then come and join the Cultivate Network Discord. The link will be in the show notes and it is also 
in the um, bio on Instagram and on Twitter. So with that out the way, with the housekeeping done, on to today's episode. And we are picking things back up with an absolute doozy. And that is the case of Robert Bedella. And because this guy is one of the sickest motherfuckers that I have covered so far, this is going to be rough. Um, This is going to be a pretty brutal episode. Um, So there are going to be references to torture, references to rape, references to sexual assault, references to sodomy, and a whole host of other things. So this guy was one sick puppy. So without further ado, hold on to your butts as we're going to talk about the butcher of Kansas City. Robert Andrew Bedella Sr., a die setter for, for, for the Ford Motor Company, and Mary Louise Bedella would welcome their first of two sons, Robert Bedella, on January the 31st, 1949, in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. Both sons would frequently attend religious education classes, and the family would regularly attend Mass. As a child, Bedella was intelligent, but a loner who rarely played outside his home and seldom had friends to visit to socialise. With his severe nearsightedness, high blood pressure and speech impediment, he was an easy target for bullies in his neighbourhood. This would unfortunately include his father, who would physically and verbally abused the young boy for his lack of athleticism. Because Bedella's father prioritised sports and physical education, he would frequently compare his older son unfavourably to his younger brother and saw his lack of interest in sports as a failure. Father of the year so far. Um, As a result, Bedella's father would often beat his son with a leather strap because, you know, that's what Bobby Bedella gets for being unathletic. If you're unathletic, then I'm afraid you just deserve a beating with a leather strap. I was joking. I'm not serious. Do not clip that. Do not whoop your sons or your children or anybody with a leather strap just because you don't like sport. Bedella did well in school, but his aloofness and the hostility he experienced from other classmates would make it difficult for teachers to work with him. As a result, he rarely interacted with his peers. However, by the time Bobby reached his mid-teens, he had found a new confidence um, on learning of his sexuality. And though he kept this a closely guarded secret, it would give Bedella a level of self-assurance. Unfortunately, this would also manifest into a rude, condescending attitude, particularly towards women, that he would hold for the rest of his days. He would pick up skills in showmanship, cuisine and art. The Bedella family would travel to Canton, Ohio on Christmas Day in 1965 to see family. And at the age of 39, Bedella's father would suffer a heart attack that same evening. Two days later, Bedella would make his own way back to Cuyahoga Falls. His relatives would would inform him... Oh my goodness me. Um, You can tell that I haven't recorded in a while. (laughs) His relatives would inform him of his father's passing when he got home. Bedella sought solace in his religion and later researched widely about several religions, but he would eventually develop a critical attitude towards all of them. The Collector, a 1965 movie based on the John Fowles book, was also seen by Bedella, a deranged man who chases and then kidnaps a young woman he finds attractive, holding her captive in his windowless stone basement and considering her as nothing more than an appealing specimen, is the centre of the movie's plot. 
remember that plot, by the way. Despite her captor's best efforts to keep her alive, the woman would eventually succumb to a court sickness after many weeks. Later, Bedella would claim that this film had left a deep influence on him. Bedella's mother would get remarried uh, soon after his father passed away. Her oldest son, who saw the action as a form of betrayal against his father, was incensed. As a result, Bedella withdrew more and more, engrossing himself in the solitary pursuits he had engaged in since he was a little child, which included drawing, collecting coins and stamps, and writing to pen pals abroad. Later, Bedella would assert that he developed a strong interest in primitive art, photographs and antiques as a result of his pen pal hobby, which involved writing to people in places like Vietnam and Burma. These pals would also send him stamps for his collection, as well as photographs of ancient cultures, architecture, um, and mythical and historical icons. Bedella would graduate from Cuyahoga Falls High School in the summer of 1967. He had excelled academically throughout his high school and had shown such promise that in 1966, one teacher had put him on an individual study course. After graduating, Bedella would move to Kansas City. With plans to become a college lecturer, he would enroll in the Kansas City Arts Institute. Oh my God. Um, with plans to become a college lecturer, he enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute. There we go. That's better. <laughs> Although Bedella was regarded as an attentive and gifted student during his first year at KCAI, by his second year, he had developed a strong anti-authoritarian stance. Despite having artistic talent, he would fall into drug addiction and low-level drug dealing. He also started frequently misusing alcohol. On at least two occasions, he also tortured animals, decapitating a duck in front of his classmates on one occasion and using a dog as a test subject for sedative and tranquilizer experiments on another. Not cool, Bobby B. When he was 19 years old, Bedella was stopped for attempting to sell methamphetamine to an undercover police officer. He was released after posting a $3,000 bond, which is equal to $23,000 in 2021 money. Later, he would enter a guilty plea and he would get a five-year suspended sentence. Following the initial arrest, Johnson County Police detained Bedella and two other students for marijuana and LSD possession. Although the allegations against Bedella and one of the other students were later dismissed owing to a lack of evidence, he was imprisoned for five days because he, because he was unable to make bond in this case. After receiving severe criticism from the Institute's administration for a piece of art in which he tortured, murdered, and roasted a duck, holy fuck, Robert, uh, Bedella would drop out of college and move into a home in Kansas City, Missouri's Hyde Park neighborhood. Bedella had been out as gay for a number of years by this point. He started spending a lot of his leisure time with drug users, petty criminals, runaways, and male prostitutes. Bedella was adamant that throughout the majority of the 1970s, he had absolutely no personal contact with any of these people and would instead befriend them before attempting to assist them break free from their drug addictions and generally lazy or criminal lifestyles. According to some of his neighbours, Bedella gradually began to feel like a foster parent to many of these young people. Early in the 1980s, many of his older acquaintances had stopped speaking to him socially 
and Bedella had come to rely more and more on these young men for friendship and companionship. He would later allege that he had grown more upset with several of these people for not listening to his advice about staying away from destructive activity. Uh, Pot calling the kettle black comes to mind. Contrary to what he later admitted to investigators, Bedella frequently had sex with a number of these people. He also used various forms of control over them, including giving them loans and letting them stay at his home without paying rent to facilitate these sexual relationships. Shortly before settling into his Charlotte Street residence, Bedella started working as a short order cook in a number of Kansas City restaurants, in part to assist paying the legal costs and fines incurred as a result of his drug charges he had to go through at the age of 19. He also sold obscure works of art and antiques he had amassed and gathered from contacts he had made in Africa, Asia, South America, and numerous Pacific Rim countries in order to earn an additional revenue. Initially, he would run this side venture out of his home. At the Westport Flea Market, Bedella would begin leasing his own booth in 1982. Bob's Bazaar Bizarre was the name of the shop, which specialised in trading and selling primitive art, jewellery and antiques. Even while he occasionally made a sizable monthly profit, he often did not make enough money from this business to cover his daily costs and make ends meet. Because of this, Bedella periodically had to choose between selling his products at a loss to other vendors and committing theft or scavenging to find things to sell at his booth. Additionally, he frequently accepted lodges at his house as a way to make extra money. Paul Howell, who was a neighbouring vendor whose booth was next to Bedella's, introduced himself to Bedella when they were both working at the same location. Jerry Howell, who was the younger son of Paul Howell, and Bedella would soon become, friend, uh, become friends. Although Bedella would claim Jerry Howe later revealed uh, in him that he and his buddies occasionally made money as male prostitutes, Jerry Howe and his friends initially humiliated and teased Robert for his open homosexuality. So now we know a little bit about old Bobby B. Let's get into the nitty gritty and how much of just a fucked up human being this man was. Jerry Howell was Robert Bedella's first victim in 1984. Jerry was the son of Paul Howell, a friend of Bedella's from his art dealing business. Bedella offered to take the young Jerry Howell to a dancing competition in a nearby town on July the 5th of that year. Robert would give the 19-year-old alcohol on the way and then gave him Valium and Ace Promazine. He routinely drugged, tortured, raped and violated Howell with various objects while he was strapped to his bed for 28 hours. Howell would beg Bedella to stop, but he ignored him and would keep torturing him until he finally died from a mixture of his gag, the pills and his own vomit. Later, Bedella would claim that before taking Howell's lifeless body to the basement, he briefly uh, performed cardiopulmonary resuscitation on him. After making multiple cuts to the youth's inner elbows and jugular vein, he would suspend Howe's body above a huge cooking pot and left it there overnight to let the blood flow from his corpse. He used a chainsaw and boning knives the next day to cut Howe's body into pieces, which he then wrapped in newspaper and garbage bags. Later, these bags were put inside bigger trash bags which Bedella then set outside for a garbage team to pick up and transport to a landfill. 
Throughout this process, Videla would keep detailed notes of how he raped and tortured Hal on a stenographer's pad, something he would continue to do so for all of his victims, because, you know, he's a gargantuan piece of shit. Howell had constantly begged for his continued assault and torture to stop throughout the duration of his capture, although Bedella would either disregard these begs, ridicule his victim, or threaten him, Bedella would recall. He would continue to be adamant to investigators that he was doing this for his, quote, physical and mental fulfilment, not for his delight. Isn't that kind of doing it for your delight? You're doing it for your mental and physical fulfilment. Surely you're also doing that out of pleasure. I might be wrong, but that seems like the same thing to me. Robert Sheldon was the next victim, one of the drifters whom Bedella had cared for and taken advantage of for years. On April the 10th, 1985, the 23-year-old would show up at Bedella's door pleading for his permission to stay. Although Sheldon would pay his rent on time, according to Bedella, he regarded him as an inconvenience and decided to drug and imprison him even though he had no physical attraction to the victim. Bedella was adamant that he held no firm malice towards Sheldon, but saw him as an individual whom he could, quote, express some of the anger and frustration that I had toward other people on. Sedatives were administered to Sheldon, who was then imprisoned for three days in a bedroom on the second floor. He used piano wire to bind Sheldon's wrist in an effort to permanently harm the nerves. He would also swab a drain cleaner in Sheldon's left eye. Needles were also inserted under Sheldon's fingernails. Ugh, the needle thing makes me cringe. When workmen were set to arrive at Bob's home three days after Bedella had started holding Sheldon captive, he made the decision to suffocate Sheldon and dissect his body before disposing of it. The following June, Bedella would discover Mark Wallace hiding in his toolshed to escape a violent rainstorm. Wallace had previously assisted Bedella with yard labour, so Bedella had a passing familiarity with the man. The same as with Robert Sheldon, Bedella invited Wallace to his home and offered to inject uh, chloro, chlor, chlorpromazine, chlorpromazine uh, to calm down and relax him after observing Wallace's intense tenseness and depression. After Wallace voluntarily accepted the offer, Bedella then made the decision to imprison him. Wallace was transported. Why did I say transported? like the man was fucking abducted by aliens or something, to a bedroom on the second floor where he spent almost a day being held captive and tortured, including having alligator, tits placed, uh, alligator clips sorry, placed on his nipples to allow for electric shocks to be administered to his body whenever Wallace started to relapse into unconsciousness. What the fuck, Robert? According to Bedella, Mark Wallace would pass away due to a combination of the drugs, the gag, and a lack of oxygen an hour after Bedella began experimenting with hypodermic needles by injecting them into various muscles on his victim's back. He would note that this victim passed away on June the 23rd at 7pm. The following month, Bedella would receive a call from Walter James Ferris, another acquaintance, asking whether he might stay at his home. Bedella agreed specifically with the goal to kidnap Ferris, whom he had planned to meet that evening at a bar. Bedella said that Ferris was the first person he purposely tortured, 
despite the cruelty in which he had treated his prior three victims. During the captivity of his final three victims, he admitted to investigators that there were times when he stopped adding to his abuse diaries because he thought the victim wouldn't be able to make it much longer. Ferris was brought home by Bedella, who then drugged him with tranquilizers he had hidden in food, bound him to his bed and tortured him non-stop for around 27 hours. The torture consisted of repeatedly giving 7,700 volt electrical shocks for up to five minutes to each shoulder and testicles, as well as acupuncture with hypodermic needles to the neck and the genitals. Ferris gradually became delirious, but Bedella continued his physical and sexual assaults until he noted in his log that Ferris was unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds. The following entry stated very delayed breathing, and lastly, Bedella wrote that Ferris had passed away with the slang phrase 86, which he had previously used during his time as a chef, and which, as Bedella subsequently clarified, meant anything from throw it out to stop the project. To the dudes listening, did your balls just get sucked up into your chest? Because my balls are now inside my body. Like they have just burrowed inside my body. The following year, Todd Stoops, a former male prostitute who had previously lived with Bedella, was spotted by Robert in a nearby park. Given that Stoops claimed he needed $13 to buy drugs, which is about $33 in today's money, Bedella invited Stoops over to his apartment for lunch with the extra inducement of sex. Stoops was held captive for two weeks before he died, during which time Bedella gradually increased his captive's horror to turn him into a compliant and unconscious sex slave. Bedella would use electrical shocks through Stoops' closed eyes in an attempt to blind him and inject drain cleaner into his larynx to try and silence his screaming. Oh, and that was in addition to the constant rape and sexual assault. In the second week following his capture, Stoops would request a soda and a sandwich from Bedella. Stoops would break down in tears when Bedella declined. On June the 27th, he would rupture Stoops' anal wall with his fist. Fuck me causing bleeding and discharge. What the actual fuck, Bob? Towards the end of Stoops' captivity, he tried to feed his captive ice cream and soup, although Stoops wasn't able to keep anything down. Stoops was so frail on his last day of imprisonment. Later, Bedella claimed that he had struggled to breathe in a sitting position. Stoops would pass away on July the 1st, 1986, and a forensic pathologist would later testify that the ripped anal wall caused deadly septic shock. Larry Wayne Pearson, aged 20, and Bedella became friends in the spring of 1987. When Pearson entered his store and told Bedella that he had been interested in both witchcraft and magic as a boy, they became friends. Soon after, Pearson would move in with Bedella on a short-term basis, and voluntarily help out around the house to pay the rent. According to Bedella, he did not initially intend to capture this individual, but formed the plan to do so on June the 23rd, when, having bailed Pearson out of jail, the young man jokingly referred to his practice of robbing gay men in Wichita. I mean, probably an overreaction by old Bobby there. Maybe. Just a little bit. The following night, Bedella made sure that Pearson was drunk before giving him a chloropro- a chlorpromazine 
injection and escorting him to the basement. There, he bound Pearson's hands above his head, connected the rope he had used for this purpose to a brick column, and then injected drain cleaner into Pearson's larynx. What is this man's obsession with drain cleaner and making people drink it and putting it in people's eyes? He then went to the basement and bought an electrical transformer. Of his six murder victims, Pearson, in Bedella's opinion, was by far the most obedient. On his fifth day of capture, Bedella determined Pearson had gained his trust regarding his continued cooperation in his sexual and physical abuse. By this point, Pearson had already undergone torture such as repeated electrical shocks administered with the transformer and the breaking of several hand bones with an iron rod to, to render him submissive. Bedella deduced Pearson had earned his trust uh, as to his continued cooperation, cooperation in his uh, abuse. As a reward, Pearson was sent to the second floor after Bedella promised to stop hurting him as severely as he had while he was being held captive in the basement if he continued to comply. To avoid upsetting Bedella and risking more torture or being sent back to the basement during the last two weeks of his confinement, Pearson was able to learn how to sleep perfectly still and completely silent. After being held captive for six weeks, Pearson um, performed a forced fellatio on Bedella and would bite into his penis deeply before yelling that he could no longer put up with his treatment. In retaliation, Pearson was killed by Bedella, who first knocked him out with a tree branch, then strangled him with a bag and ligature before driving to the hospital to get medical attention for his bit penis. Pearson's head was initially kept in a plastic bag inside Bedella's freezer before being buried in the backyard after his body had been later dissected in the basement. Christopher Bryson, who was a 22-year-old male prostitute whom Bedella had sought for sex, was the last victim Bedella kidnapped on March the 29th, 1988. At Bedella's home, Brian was knocked unconscious with an iron bar, then bound to Bedella's bed, where he was subjected to similar methods of abuse and torture endured by previous victims. Although in Bryson's case, Bedella repeatedly swabbed his eyes with ammonia before exclaiming to him, the only things you need to think about are you, me, and this house. After a few days, Bedella informed Bryson that although he was willing to negotiate certain parts of the abuse and suffering his hostage was experiencing, there would be no, uh, no negotiations regarding his sexual abuse. Bedella finished this discussion with a stern warning. I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. I think they're dead because you're a fucking arsehole, Bob, personally. But Bryson knew how to gain Bedella's trust, and by the third day, eventually persuading Bedella to tie his hands in front of him rather than to the bed. He had also persuaded Bedella to leave a television on within the room, with the remote control placed between his legs whenever Bedella was out the room. However, he would later state to investigators that he had thought almost constantly about escaping. The following day, he managed to break free of his restraints by burning through them using a book of matches Bedella had inadvertently left in the room and within his reach when he had left the house to go to his place of work. In order to escape the residence, Bryson would jump from the second floor window while wearing just a dog collar around his neck, breaking a bone in his foot in the process. He would then rush towards a meter maid crossing the street 
while yelling for them to contact the police. This person took Bryson to the house he was heading for, whereupon the residents immediately phoned the police, who showed up a little while later. Now, just imagine being that traffic warden and you're just, you know, doing your job. You're just, you know, looking at cars, maybe writing out some tickets or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you just see this butt-ass naked man in just a dog collar jump from a second-story window and then start legging it to you, screaming at you to call the police. Like, that's insane. That is insane. Four, four police officers would then question Bryson at the scene. And at first, he said that he had been hitchhiking when Badella kidnapped, raped, and tortured him for four days before he jumped from a window on the second floor of the building. Additionally, he had been detained against his will for a large portion of that time while being restrained to a bed on the second story of the house, being repeatedly sodomized, drugged, and having drain cleaner ejected down his throat to prevent him speaking aloud. The officers also observed Bryson's red puffy eyes, apparent scars and welts all over his body while he spoke, in addition to the dog collar and the fractured foot. Bryson was taken to the uh, Menor Men Men Menora Menora Medical Center for treatment, accompanied by a third officer, while the fourth officer radioed the Kansas City Police Department to request a formal search to be prepared for the property. Two officers were instructed to maintain a discreet surveillance of the property during this time. So I think it's now time for a quick commercial break and to hear from some amazing podcasts. So I shall see you in a jiffy. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Leo. I love horror movies. So do I. I don't love that I have nobody to talk about them with. It sucks. You see something great. You tell your friends to go see it and they don't have the time because they have kids and a job. <sighs> they have a life. Boring. I know. Imagine if there was a podcast where you could make your buddy watch a horror movie and under threat of death they had to and then you got to talk about it, crack jokes, things like that. That sounds wonderful. What if we did it? We could do it. Under threat of death. Yes. So much death. So much threat. I love it. We could call it Spoils of Horror. Great name. And guess what? What? We've been doing it for three months. What? It's crazy. We're on all major podcasting platforms. You can search Spoils of Horror on all social medias. Come check us out. Hang out with us. Have a good time. Join us. If you dare. Dun, dun, dun. In the 1970s, four women were found dead in their apartments in London, Ontario. At first, pathologists determined they died of natural causes. But when three more women turned up dead, the community discovered something far more sinister at play. Listen to Dark Adaptation Podcast to hear how a deranged killer scaled buildings to enter their victims' bedrooms. From the darkest corners of the most haunted places in the world to the lesser-known cases in true crime, we take you on a journey through the twisted and bizarre. And for larger cases, our resident astrologist delves into the charts and skies of major events and people for a true crime podcast with a cosmic twist. Tune in every Monday to Dark Adaptation wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll catch you on the dark side. Bryson later provided more in-depth answers to questions at the Kansas City Police Department, where he claimed that the person who lived at 4315 Charlotte Street had held him against his will and tortured and humiliated him repeatedly for four days. In addition, Bryson informed authorities that his captor had shown him Polaroid pictures of men who looked to be dead, 
explaining that they were people he had previously tried in vain to, quote, gather as his sex slaves. Bryson's captor also warned him that he would never be allowed to leave uh, leave his property, that he had been that he had previously claimed to have killed the people that he had kidnapped and treated in this way, and that if Bryson had ever caused him any trouble or would become a threat, he would either be killed or subjected to even more brutal forms of torture. Bedella was detained on suspicion of sexually assaulting Christopher Bryson on the afternoon of Bryson's escaped. escape. He declined to allow officers inside his home and the search warrant earlier requested was drafted to search his property. Investigators found charred ropes linked to the posts at the foot of the bed and in the bedroom on the second level, supporting Bryson's assertions that he had been restrained and tortured there. A plug-in electrical transformer with cables running to the bed were also present in the space. Near the bed was a metal tray with syringes, little bottles that appeared to hold prescription medications, swabs and eye drops. A long iron pipe, different length ropes and leather belts were also discovered in the room. Investigators also noticed that the bed posts were heavily worn, which may have been the result of previous shackles being connected to them and the effort of the person or people to free themselves. Investigators conducted additional searches of the home and land at 4315 Charlotte Street finding a human skull in a closet on the second floor and a partially decomposed human head in the rear. The search also turned about multiple human vertebrae stashed in a corridor with knife and hack hacksaw scars, as well as a number of human teeth stashed in two envelopes. The property's basement included both a hacksaw and a mitosaur, and a chainsaw that had been contaminated with blood, flesh, and pubic hairs was also located there. The basement floor, as well as two plastic trash cans, had significant blood stains according to luminol testing. Another discovery in Bedella's home included 334 Polaroid photos and 34 snapshot prints of different male persons. These photos depicted Christopher Bryson and a number of other males, both alive and dead, and many of the photos had been taken while the subjects had been tortured. Numerous shackles and sexual equipment, uh, pornographic books, hypodermic needles, and a book on drugs were also found during the search. Officers found several newspaper clippings about a missing young man named Jerry Howell on top of a chest of drawers in one bedroom, and a wallet and a driver's license belonged to a missing person named James Ferris were found in a closet on the second floor of the house. The stenographer's pad, which contained the detailed torture logs he had kept for each victim, were also found there. Uh, Goddamn, that's that's kind of dabbing for Bobby. The Kansas City Police Department put together a special task force of 11 detectives and one sergeant before the search of Bedella's property was finished to concentrate only on Bedella's case. This task team thoroughly investigated Bedella's background and found that he was a well-known he was well known among Kansas City male hustlers for preying on wandering young men. Many of these male prostitutes were also hesitant to take him on as a client due to his history of drugging, injecting, and torturing his sexual partners and acquaintances, as well as the fact that he had he had 
long been thought to be a suspect in the disappearance of the two men whose personal belongings had been discovered in his home, those of Jerry Howell and James Ferris. Regarding each of these men, missing persons reports had been made and Bedella had undergone a protracted interrogation. He had vehemently denied any involvement in the person's disappearance in both occasions. Despite being a top suspect in both cases and being under surveillance, police had been unable to uncover any concrete evidence connecting Bedella to either man's disappearance. In both cases, after after providing his initial statement to police, Bedella had angrily refused to speak with them any further without a lawyer present, because that screams innocence. Later, if the police didn't stop, stop questioning or monitoring, monitoring him, he had his lawyer threaten to accuse them of harassing him. Several instant images, some shot after James Ferris's death, were discovered on Bedella's property, and his wife recognised him in them. One photograph of a young man hanging upside down in Bedella's cellar was officially identified as Paul Howell, uh, as, as, sorry, officially identified by Paul Howell of being his son, Jerry. Other Polaroid photos showed nameless young men, and many investigators were tasked with finding each one of them so they could find out whether or not the person was alive, and if he was, what had led to his depiction. On April the 13th, Bedella was instructed to pose naked for a series of photos so that portions of his body could be photographed in the exact angle depicted within these images for comparison with the original Polaroid photos, because some of these pictures showed a section of the person who had taken the picture. The police started tracing each of these men whose names had been scrawled on a separate stenographer pad at Bedella's address. One of these people who was trapped down was a young man by the name of Freddie Kellogg. He was able to tell detectives that he and several other young men had lived with Bedella on and off since the early 1980s, and that Bedella had a habit of giving his lodgers drugs, usually intravenously, before having sex with them whether or not they consented to it. In addition, Kellogg claimed Bedella had explicitly indicated that one requirement of staying with him was for Kellogg to convince attractive young men to attend parties on Charlotte Street so that Bedella could drug them. If Bedella ever learned that one of these people was a police informant, he would exploit that information to his advantage by using it to blackmail that person. Despite this aspect of his arrangement with Bedella, Kellogg went on to say that many male addicts and prostitutes had been hesitant to make contact with Bedella due to allegations linking him with Jerry Howe's disappearance in 1984. Along with these revelations, Kellogg was able to identify three of the people shown in the Polaroids as Todd Stoops, Robert Sheldon and Larry Wayne Pearson. These detectives would soon learn that Bedella had paid $30, which is the equivalent of $72 in 2021, in June 1987 to obtain Pearson's bond and that no further records existed to suggest that Pearson was still alive. Investigators did learn, however, that on August or that in August 1987, Bedella had filed an assault report from a hospital room in which he claimed a man by the name of Larry Pearson had severely lacerated his penis by biting it deeply during oral sex. A manufacturing facility in Kansas City where Robert Sheldon worked verified in an interview that the young man had been a trustworthy employee 
but had abruptly stopped showing up for work in April 1985. Fidela was made aware of these findings at his residence not long after the search of 4315 Charlotte Street was finished. Investigators sought to conduct their first official investigation with him the same afternoon when he was instructed to pose for the nude photos to compare with the Polaroid pictures he had taken, but Bedella just invoked his right to silence in the situation. Later, when investigators tried to get Bedella to provide handwriting samples to show that he had written the notes found within the numerous stenographers' pads they had uncovered, he refused and was given a six-month jail sentence for contempt of court. In the beginning, Bedella was formally charged with one case of felonious restraint, one offence of assault, and seven counts of forceful sodomy. Later, as police looked into the discovery at his property, more charges were formally compiled against him. He was kept in protective custody in a Jackson County jail instead of posting bond of $500,000, which would be uh, $1,119,500 in 2021. A provisional public defender was appointed as his legal counsel. By using dental x-rays that were obtained by Sabina from the University of Kansas Medical Center, the skull discovered within Bedella's closet was recognized as belonging to Robert Sheldon in late April. The two men independently called the Kansas City City Police Department on the day a dental identification was made on Sheldon's skull to report that one of the seven unidentified young men shown in photographic array made available to the media on April the 27th was a former classmate of theirs named Mark Wallace. Wallace's sister would inform the police that her brother had been missing since the middle of 1985. Investigators soon learned that Larry Wayne Pearson was the subject of photo D in the same array that had been given to the media. The dental records of Pearson, who had formerly been a ward of the Wichita court, were retrieved and compared to the skull discovered in Bedella's property. After the head found in his property was publicly recognized as Larry Wayne Pearson's on May the 12th, Bedella would be officially charged with the murder by, dismem- by dismemberment of Pearson in July. To support the recovered physical evidence, prosecutors had acquired enough circumstantial evidence. A grand jury would formally charge Bedella with the killing of Larry Wayne Pearson on July the 22nd, 1988. He was charged with killing Larry Pearson in the first degree and entered a plea of guilty before Judge Alvin C. Randall in the Jackson County Court's Fourth Circuit in the following month. The plea was made after a late morning break in the arraignment in the arraignment hearing for the specific murder and surprised both the judge and the prosecutor. The prosecution team assigned to the case decided to accept the plea. Assistant Prosecutor Pat Hall later stated that this was in the best interest of our client, the people of the state of Missouri. The judge demanded that Bedella admit to Pearson's death under oath once his plea was submitted and accepted. Bedella responded to his lawyer's questions by saying, quote, I put a plastic bag over his head and tied it with rope and allowed him to suffocate. When asked if he performed this act deliberately, Bedella would simply state, yes. He was given a life sentence without the chance of release. Following his conviction, Bedella was moved to the Missouri State Penitentiary to begin serving a life term. Later, due to worries for his safety, he would temporarily be held in protective custody 
at the Potosi Correctional Centre, or Potosi. Potosi Correctional Centre? Potosi, I think, not Potosi. After entering a second guilty plea before the Jackson County Court on August the 24th, Berdella would receive a second life sentence without the possibility of parole for one count of forcible sodomy against Christopher Bryson. Six counts of sodomy and one count of assault were dismissed as part of the plea agreement. He also received a second term of seven years for one count of felonious restraint against Bryson on this date. Despite initially pleading not guilty to the remaining five murder charges on September the 13th, 1988, with the agreement of his two defence attorneys, Fidela ultimately conducted a plea bargain with the prosecutors to avoid the death penalty uh, in these remaining charges. As part of the plea agreement, Fidela consented to provide a graphic confession detailing all of his victims' deaths, including who they were, the degrading treatment they received, how they were killed, and what he did with their remains. A prosecutor received these confessions between December the 13th and December the 15th, 1988. At a former hearing set on December the 19th at 9am, the prosecution agreed to drop its demand for the death penalty in exchange for Bedella's cooperation. On December the 19th, Bedella formally relinquished his right uh, to a trial for any remaining murder charges with the understanding that he would be found guilty of four counts of second-degree murder and one more first-degree murder charge, which was the murder of Robert Sheldon. In front of uh, Judge Robert Myers in the Jackson County Circuit Court, he formally entered pleas of guilty to each one of these accusations. Only the relatives of his victims and press media were allowed admission to this hearing, which was closed to the general public. Judge Myers responded to these guilty pleas by imposing five more concurrent life terms with the additional stipulation that the only first-degree murder charge to which he admitted guilt would forever bar any chance of parole. So, as we move into the part of the episode where I cover the confessions from old Bobby Bedella, a word of caution, this is not going to be pretty. So between December the 13th and December the 15th, after changing his plea and requesting approval of their agreement to not seek the death penalty uh, against him if he fully confessed, Videla gave testimony to the prosecution. In his testimony, Videla asserted that the 1965 film The Collector, uh, remember, I said, remember that film, which he had first seen, had a profound impact on him. The video had reappeared in his mind following the initial shock and revulsion he claimed to have felt after killing his first victim. It later became a motivating psychological force in the conduct he demonstrated towards his victims in the subsequent killings. He told investigators that after choosing to make his victims captives, his victims uh, had lost all humanity in his view. Bedella admitted that many of the many of the abbreviated entries in the actual torture logs were just shorthand terms for the forms of abuse he had inflicted on his victims, while others would describe either their responses to these ongoing acts of abuse and torture or his initial impressions upon first seeing them when he entered the room where he had kept them restrained. For instance, the postmarked CP described injecting his victims with uh, chlorpromazine to help control them. Their entries marked with DC described rubbing drain cleaner in their eyes or injecting, injecting the drug into their vocal cords. The more you know, right? The more you know. Uh, entries reading EK or EKG 
related to torture, torture administered to his captives with electrical shocks, whereas several other entries contained the anatomical location where Badella administered the abuse or torture to his victims. For instance, Bedella once recorded the following information about victims James about victim James Ferris. Two one half kept NK slash shoulder to imply that he had administered 2.2 cubic centimeters of ketamine to his victim's neck and shoulder. Other entries, such as gag loose, no resistant in reti or very delayed breathing, snoring were more self-explanatory. Following Bedella's arrest, detectives used a toxology expert in their investigation. According to the notes he made regarding victim Robert Sheldon, this person said that the accumulation of chlorpromazine that was put into this victim was toxic. Additionally, Bedella admitted to alternating, alternating burying the heads of the two victims in his backyard. And he also said that he had removed and cleaned the first skull, that of Robert Sheldon, at the same time that he had buried the head of victim Larry Pearson in the same hole. He also asserted that he had planned to retrieve Pearson's skull after enough time had passed for it to become skeletonized, but he was adamant that he had done so for no logical or evil purpose. He adamantly refuted media reports that he had practiced any type of Satanism or had sold parts of the bodies of his victims in his flea market shop. Badella was able to name all of his victims to investigators, although one victim, who was Mark Wallace, had been seized by opportunity when he had discovered him seeking shelter. His other five victims had been captured after he had unsuccessfully tried to steer them away from their general lifestyles and had thus simply became frustrated at the failure of his efforts. The sexual, physical and emotional abuse that Bedella had subjected each victim to and had documented in his torture logs uh, was revealed in graphic detail upon each victim's capture. He tersely explained his successive actions to investigators on December the 14th with the statement that he was capturing them first and what developed, developed. He did, however, assert that his that as his abuse and torture increased, he had attempted to prevent any of the victims from suffering from any type of starvation or illness by occasionally giving them meals or antibiotics intravenously. Well, look at that. Bobby B does care, a, a, a true humanitarian. Um, his victims had been subjected to malnutrition, high-voltage electrical shocks, the application of alkali-based detergents to their throats, vocal cords, or eyeballs, as well as the bludgeoning of their hands in an effort to render these body parts useless. The placement of needles under their fingernails was, an, was another means of torture. In addition, Bedella acknowledged that the severity of his abuse had escalated with each new victim, and that he had seen the Polaroid picture, uh, and that he had seen the Polaroid photos he had taken of them as a trophy or record of the event. Okay, maybe I'll take back that humanitarian badge. Bedella would correspond with several people and gave an interview to the Missouri television station KCPT in the years after his 1988 convictions and incarceration. He made an effort to repair his reputation as a quote sensitive citizen who had, quote, made mistakes in committing his crimes in front of everyone who mattered. Made mistakes, you know, like when you go to the shop and forget the milk. In addition, he asserted that he had been unfairly vilified by the media 
before, during and after his arrest and plea agreements and that it was due to police negligence that he had been released from prison after committing his first murder. Uh, man, why, why did the media vilify this poor man who was a pillar of the community and a role model and a, an absolute, you know, perfect citizen? How dare the media vilify this man? <laughs> Badella also complained to prison officials on a number of occasions about the conditions that he was held in. Additionally, he complained in a number of letters to, local, to a local minister that despite prison authorities being aware of his high blood pressure, they were not giving him the recommended heart medication. On October the 8th, 1992, at 2 p.m., Badella reported experiencing heart problems to the jail personnel and was transported from his cell to the medical facility. His heart was unstable, so medical professionals called an ambulance and at 3.55 p.m., a hospital in Columbia, Missouri would, de would declare Badella dead after a heart attack. Uh, he was 43 years old. Soon after the news of Badella's passing was delivered to Alvin Randall, the judge who oversaw his trial. Randall, upon hearing the news, would say sarcastically, quote, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> Four separate auctions of Badella's enormous collection of artifacts and furnishings that had been seized from his residence and place of businesses, uh, place of business were held in November 1988, with the goal of raising money to cover his rising legal costs in the cases that were still pending at the time. There was a lot of interest in the auction across the country, and phone bids would come from all around the United States. Even though several items sold for less than anticipated, more than $60,000, which uh, in 2021 would be approximately 137000 had been raised for this cause by the end of the first day's auctioneering alone. And to wrap things all up, in December 1988, a local businessman paid an undisclosed amount to buy Bedella's home, and later on, the house was demolished. And that is the case of the Kansas City butcher, Robert Bedella. It's over, people. We made it. We got through it. That was rough, but... If you enjoyed this episode, that's probably a poor choice of words, but you know what I mean. Don't forget to rate and review. You can do this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the website. Recommend the podcast to your friends, to that one teacher at school who was pretty cool, to that cute barista at Starbucks who has a thing for true crime that you really like. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, Casanova. I see you. Seriously though, reviews you know, leaving a rating, sharing the podcast to friends and family um, helps out small shows like mine massively. So please share the love. And if you enjoy what I do, you know, rate and review. Uh, oh, and there's also this podcast network, uh, Cultivate, that I'm part of that you should really check out. Uh, we have some amazing shows. So go and listen to them, review and recommend them, show them some love. Don't forget to join the Cultivate Discord where you can talk to all the other shows on the network and you can talk to me. We can shoot the shit. We can talk about random stuff. We can talk about podcast stuff. You can, you know, give me feedback on episodes. You can suggest topics. Holler at me um, and let me know. But join the Discord and hang out with all of us at Cultivate and check out the Patreon as well. Um, it's been so good to, you know, record again. I hope you enjoyed it. And I also want to say a massive thank you to Ebony for joining the Horror House Patreon and becoming a patron. Thank you so much 
for the support. It is much, much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. And all that is left to say is until next time, stay bloody spooky.